Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Right now, we're going to get a little political with you. We had that debate last night. So what we're going to do here is we're going to talk to some smart people. Wendy Schiller, uh, professor at Brown University, is uh, joining us here. And then at 1030, we're going to have that simulcast with Bloomberg Television. Joe Matthew and Henry Horton interviewed GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley. So we're going to go a little politics uh, for the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, Wendy, thanks so much for joining us here. We had a, a debate last night, sans President Trump. What were your takeaways from the Republican candidates? Well, I mean, I think some of them, you know, did themselves some favors. I think Ron DeSantis held his own. Maybe he didn't strike a knockout blow against anybody else. But I think he showed he was still formidable and wanted to fight. I think Mike Pence, even though he's got a tough climb, really held his own and sort of emphasized his experience. Nikki Haley, whom you're going to speak with, I think she had a banner night. Uh, she did not shy away from debate. She tried to be more transparent, I think, about some issues like abortion. And she really, I think, wiped the floor uh, with David Bromsway <laughs> because she indicated that she was, of course, representative of the U.N. under Trump, that she knew uh, how to navigate international and foreign policy and that he had a very simplistic response to engaging with the world. And it just really showcased his inexperience and it really highlighted her experience. So I thought that was one of her stellar moments throughout the whole debate. What was her statement on abortion? Because I know voters have been uh, coming out as evidenced uh, by the uh, recent um, uh, referendum, I guess it was, in, in Ohio, uh, when it comes to abortion. And the GOP has typically been um, more anti-abortion or pro-life, whereas it seems like the, the majority of the country believes that at least in the early stages, uh, a woman should be able to decide herself what she wants to do with her body. Yeah, I mean, this was really a showcase for people who were trying to get the GOP to a place that the majority of Americans might agree with, like a 15-week abortion ban. I'm not saying that would, you know, necessarily attract a majority position, but Mike Pence uh, had it out there. And I think that seems, quote-unquote, reasonable to a lot of people, particularly independent voters. So that's an, a position that would not lose the White House. An outright ban or a six-week ban, I think, given that Roe v. Wade has been basically revoked by the Supreme Court, I think that's a losing position for the GOP to get the White House in 2024, and Nikki Haley understands that. Hey, Wendy, talk about Ron DeSantis. Uh, you know, one point was uh, polling fairly well, but has really kind of fallen off dramatically. Talk to us about his candidacy to date and particularly about last night. Well, I think it, it shows you the difference between running on a national stage and running in Florida, a big state, running uh, really well, winning a big campaign, you know, getting a lot of national attention. And I think uh, the mismatch was in how to run a campaign on the ground in this GOP against Donald Trump. 
He never came out really hard against Donald Trump. He still won't. In fact, it was hard to get an answer from him uh, about whether Mike Pence did the right thing in ratifying the 2020 election last night on the debate stage. So I think that was a mistake on his part. I mean, I think Trump voters want someone who will fight for them. That is constant refrain in the polling that we see, and that's what people want to see. So DeSantis showed up last night as a fighter, but the issue is, is he more of a fighter than Donald Trump? And if he's not willing to fight Donald Trump, how does he actually illustrate that to the voters? In the general... I mean, you know, everybody who hasn't followed his career closely is just going to know DeSantis for Don't Say Gay and, you know, trying to fight Mickey Mouse. Um, is that really going to help him? Well, I, I think amongst the core, uh, you know, really conservative and highly religious wing of the primary electorate in the Republican Party, which you also saw Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina trying to appeal to a number of times last night on the debate stage, that will appeal to them. And we've seen the rise of a lot of, of sort of anti-gay legislation rhetoric in state legislatures. So in the core red states, that might help DeSantis in the primary process. But in some of the bluer or mixed purple states, you know, Michigan, Ohio, bigger states in the Republican primary, I'm not sure how that plays. And I just don't know how far that gets him. Um, and I think his challenge is to really show that his poll numbers can move up in the next couple of weeks, that they can move at all. If he can show that by September 27th, the next debate, then I think he becomes still the story of being the number two behind Trump. Did did Mike Pence, you know, I, I had to get up very early this morning, so I went to bed before the debate, but I heard there was uh, a question of whether or not each candidate would support Donald Trump if he wins the nomination. Did Mike Pence raise his hand there? Because you would he, think he, he would still harbor a little uh, resentment um, from the time that Trump tried to have him lynched? Well, he, well, he um, so Mike Pence, I thought, as I said, I thought he held his own and better than held his own last night. He was very feisty for Mike Pence from what we've seen before. Um, but he sort of hedged on it. But what he didn't hedge on was if Trump was convicted. That was the weird thing. Like, well, you know, the question was, if Trump is convicted, not indicted, but in, in convicted, would you still support him? And most of the nominees, except for Asa Hutchinson, raised their hand. And Mike uh, Christie sort of waved his hand uh, and then said, oh, no, no. And then uh, Mike Pence kind of raised his hand a little bit. But it was not a profile in courage for any of the people on that stage. And uh, as one of them said to another, if you support the rule of law, you know, how can you possibly discount this kind of conviction? So right. this is going to be a problem for the Republicans moving forward. I didn't see anything last night from most of those candidates that would tell me independent voters would choose them over Biden yet. Yep. But I saw some inkling that some of them could peel away that that group from Biden. All right, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Wendy Schiller, professor at uh, Brown University. Right now, I want to bring in Mick Mulroy. He's the co-founder of the Lobo Institute, uh, and he's got a lot of experience within the U.S. government, former U.S. Marine Infantry Officer, former Power Military Operations Officer at CIA. Hey, Mick, a part of the debate last night was talking about Ukraine. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts to where the Republican Party is in its support of Ukraine. Did you learn anything at the debate last night, one way or the other? So unfortunately, I was on uh, I was on the news talking about Prigozhin's possible demise uh, last night. Yeah, we so want to get your thoughts on that as well. <laughs> yeah, sure. But when it comes to Ukraine, uh, and I do stay out of uh, politics altogether, but uh, not on the issue uh, of national security when it comes to Ukraine, I think it's important that this administ current administration does a better job explaining the why we're doing and not just the what. It doesn't uh, do much good just to talk about the billions of dollars 
uh, that are going there. Uh, I'm not opposed to that at all. But it's more important to talk about why. And I think there's plenty of Republican candidates that do understand the why, and they are explaining it. Uh, we have a strong partnership with Ukraine. They have been invaded unlawfully uh, by one of our most significant adversaries, who, if left unchecked, could easily uh, continue on into a NATO country, which would put us at war. So um, I actually just got out of the Churchill War Room here in London nice. uh, about an hour before this. And if that tells you, if you look at that history and how the United States support, supported uh, England during, the, uh, during that time, I view this very much the same. And I hope that everybody that would ever seek to be the commander in chief would as well. Partners deserve to have partners in times of peace and in times of war. Well, only for so long, right? I mean, President Biden showed that no matter what kind of promises we made to the Afghani people, we pulled out of there uh, without, without saving them. Um, do you think that's going to be a problem for him in the election? Uh, the Afghan withdrawal, I, I absolutely do think that's going to be a problem, particularly uh, not that we're a big voting block with the Afghan uh, veterans. That, you know, my position, although it doesn't matter much, was that we should have left a residual force to maintain uh, what we fought for for 20 years. Uh, but we certainly shouldn't have not just abruptly pulled out and left all of our, our partners, those that fought alongside us for 20 years, uh, to the whim of uh, the Taliban. I think that was... A national embarrassment. And I think most Americans, uh, regardless of the party they're in, uh, agree with that. And I do agree with the premise of your question. I think that's going to cause some problems, at least as much as foreign policy does play into a president election. That is a blight, uh, I think, on this administration. Let's get to um, what happened in Russia yesterday. Reportedly, um, Yevgeny Prigozhin was on a private plane that crashed outside of Moscow. And as most commentators have said, if that's true, it's not a huge surprise because his days were numbered after um, uh, leading some kind of mutiny um, against Moscow. What, what's your take on that? How does that change the picture for Wagner, for Ukraine, for Russia? So if, if Prigozhin, and apparently Utkin, and Utkin was actually the person who started Wagner, his call sign when he was in Russian Special Forces was Wagner. He was apparently on the plane as well. Uh, if he was on that plane, it looks like the Kremlin may have been trying to figure out how do they deal with Wagner post Prigozhin. And apparently, if this is true, they figured it out. And that's how that's why this this uh, this event occurred. They need to figure out how to continue operations yep. that they find economically viable in Africa, for example, without him. Right. Uh, and maybe they did that. And, and that is likely in my it's just an analysis. I don't have any information specifically right. on that, but why this took so long to happen. All right. And Mick. I think from all the analysis I've seen, it was definitely yep. something that struck the plane that brought it down. All right, Mick, thanks so much. We have to run just because of time. Mick Morway, co-founder of the Lobo Institute. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Television. I'm Anne-Marie Hardern, alongside Joe Matthew, and we are pleased to have joining us now the former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley. Um, Ambassador, thank you so much for your time this morning. The Wall Street Journal editorial board is leading with this. Most GOP voters who aren't in Iowa or New Hampshire are only getting to know these candidates. And Ms. Haley may have been the most pleasant surprise. How are you feeling this morning? What have your overnight fundraising numbers looked like? Well, there's more where that came from, so the Wall Street Journal needs to get ready. But, you know, it's great when you can be on a debate stage and allow everybody to see their options for who's going to lead the country going forward. I think it's a good time. This is the start of the debate season. Um, we think we did really well. We're seeing that. We're getting support. Um, it hasn't stopped since the debate was over last night all the way into this morning, and we welcome it. I hope your viewers will go to NikkiHaley.com. But I think what's really important is we have to focus on the issues at hand. How do we get inflation down? Too many families can't afford groceries. They can't afford their rent. They can't afford gas. They can't afford childcare. 50% of American families can't pay for diapers and one in six American families can't pay their utility bill. And while everybody would love to say, oh, Biden did that to us, we have to remember our Republicans did that to us as well. And that's why I called mm. out Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis uh, um, and Mike Pence and Donald Trump for the, you know, spending like drunken sailors and raising the, the debt limit. I think it's time that we start to really make sure we get our fiscal sanity in order. Yeah, that was a big moment for you last night, calling out not only Democrats, but members of your own party on that debate stage. And here in Washington, Ambassador, as you pointed out specifically, the Trump administration added $8 trillion to our debt. So let's be specific today on Bloomberg. The third rail that nobody wants to touch is the entitlement, Social Security, Medicare. How would you manage the entitlements to try to start getting our arms around soaring debt? Well, you know, you've got multiple candidates on that stage that said they wouldn't touch entitlements, including Trump. And any candidate that says they're not going to touch entitlements means that they're basically going to go into the go into office and then leave America bankrupt. Social Security is going to mm -hmm. go bankrupt in 10 years. Medicare is going to go bankrupt in eight. So the way we deal with it is we don't touch anyone's retirement or anyone who's been promised in. But we go to people like my kids in their 20s when they're coming into the system and we say the rules have changed. We 
change retirement age to reflect life expectancy. Instead of cost of living increases, we do it based on inflation. We limit the benefits the on the wealthy and we expand Medicare Advantage plans. What's the right age there then, Ambassador? Well, I think we have to do the numbers. We've got to figure out what it is. But what we do know is 65 is way too low and we need to increase that. We need to do it according to life expectancy. You raised your hand last night when asked if you would support the Republican nominee. Of course, if that ended up being someone else, I know you're running for president here. But if Donald Trump is responsible for adding $8 trillion to the national debt, how could you support him again for another administration? Well, first of all, I don't think Donald Trump's going to win the nomination. I think I'm going to win the nomination. And secondly, I think that we have to focus on the fact that anybody is better than a President Kamala Harris. I mean, you look at the, the socialism creep that Biden and Harris have gotten us into, whether it's the CHIPS Act, whether it's Inflation Reduction Act, whether you see all of these subsidies, that they're green subsidies that they're doing, they're the ones that have left us into a situation where I don't think our kids are going to forgive us for it. And so any person on that stage is better than Kamala Harris, and I'm going to say that all day long, but I think the American people are smart. I don't think Donald Trump's going to be the winner of the primary. I think I'm going to be the winner of the primary, and I think that's why we need a new generational conservative leader, because we've got to leave the past and the negativity behind us, and we've got to start focusing on the real problems at hand and start getting things done. When we look at the new generation, the most Googled individual today, Ambassador, is Vivek Ramaswamy. You took issue with foreign policy yesterday. This is an individual, number one Googled in America, who wants to give Ukrainian land back to Russia, something that actually individuals in the Republican base agree with, kind of taking a playbook from the former president who has called what Putin has done in Ukraine genius and savvy. You chastised Mr. Ramaswamy yesterday, but you worked for the former president. Are both these men wrong when it comes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, you know, President Trump used to have it right when it came to Russia and Ukraine. He reversed the Obama strategy and he sent Javelin missiles to Ukraine and I was proud to serve with him then. He's now backtracked now and is going into where he's weak in the knees on Russia again. You've got Vivek Ramaswamy who basically wants to side with a murderer over a pro America, freedom-loving country, that doesn't make sense. You've got Ramaswamy who wants to cut aid to Israel. He doesn't understand that it's not that America needs Israel. Um, it's not that Israel needs America. America needs Israel. They're the front line of defense for Iran. He wants to feed Taiwan to China. He's missing all the points of you can't be so narcissistic to think America doesn't need allies. We do need allies. And when you have an ally, you take care of them. Everybody's talking about this funding to Ukraine. First of all, I think economic aid should come from the Europeans, but equipment, military um, ammunition, we should be sending that. And when we send it, let's keep in mind, it is less than three and a half percent of our defense budget that has gone to Ukraine. If you look at the percentage of GDP, 11 European countries have paid more than the U.S. But making sure we have to always know a win for Russia is a win for China, and we can't let that happen. You're saying Trump did get it right at one point, but it was under the Trump administration that withheld millions of dollars, hundreds of millions to Ukraine that was appropriated by Congress. Did they not prepare Kyiv well enough for this onslaught? 
Well, I think that, look, there was a problem with the fact that I think Trump had two sets of ammunitions that were supposed to go to military equipment and ammunitions that were supposed to go to Ukraine before Russia invaded, and Biden pulled it because he didn't want to upset Putin. This war could have been prevented. Biden was slow to the take. He didn't act strong enough. And that's what happened. And then you go and you add the Afghanistan debacle. I mean, the idea that we left Bagram Air Force Base in the middle of the night without telling our allies who stood shoulder to shoulder with us for decades because we asked them to be there. It was the green light Putin needed. It was the excitement that President Xi and China got. It's why Iran started um, test, building a bomb and North Korea started testing ballistic missiles. When they see weakness, that's when they smell blood in the water. And that's why we saw aggression. We need a strong American president who understands what it takes to keep Americans safe. And the way you do that is you make sure you defeat Russia when it comes to Ukraine, because that sends the biggest sign to China on not to invade Taiwan. The Biden administration at the moment is sending billions of dollars to Ukraine. They've also, under their leadership, were able to help expand NATO. Do you not agree with that? I absolutely agree with defending Ukraine, and I agree with the fact that we need to expand NATO. I mean, that's, that's good to see, and I actually think that it should go further than that. I think that an invitation to NATO should go to Ukraine. They've proven that they're good military fighters. And let's keep in mind, Russia has never invaded a non-NATO country. They've invaded Georgia. They've invaded Ukraine. They've invaded Moldova. They don't ever invade a non-NATO country. So we need to make sure that we continue to expand NATO. And we also need to work with our other allies, India, Australia, Japan, South Korea, mm -hmm. Israel. We need to start going to the Arab countries. We need more friends, not less. I have to ask you about an important issue on the campaign trail ambassador that loomed large over the midterm elections and will certainly be top of mind for voters, Democrats and Republicans in this next election cycle, and that is abortion. It came up in the debate last night. You've suggested that there are no votes uh, for a, a national uh, abortion ban or, for that matter, a, a regulatory bill here in Washington. You made that point last night. But I also I know that your state of South Carolina has put in place a six week minimum. Mike Pence and some others in the Republican Party are suggesting a national 15 week. What is your minimum? What should be, in fact, the, the number of weeks for this country to coalesce around? I am unapologetically pro-life, not because the Republican Party tells me to be, but because my husband was adopted and I had trouble having both of my children. Um, so I'm surrounded by blessings. Having said that, I don't judge anyone for being pro-choice any more than I want them to judge me for being pro-life. We didn't need unelected justices deciding something this personal and this important. So I think it was right to send it back to the people to decide. If the people of South Carolina chose six weeks, you know, they decided I'm happy with that. Other states have chosen other things, but at least the people's voices are being heard. The debate that happened last night was whether there should be a federal law. And I think there is a place for a federal law. I think that most Americans, mm -hmm. you know, but we have to decide in order to get a federal law, you have to win a majority of the House votes and you have to get 60 Senate votes. We haven't had 60 Senate votes on the pro-life side in over 100 years. So we need to yeah. come together on consensus. Where is the consensus? Let's agree that we should ban late-term abortions. Let's agree that we should encourage more adoptions and good quality adoptions. Let's agree that doctors and nurses who don't believe in abortion shouldn't have to perform them. Let's agree that contraception should be 
accessible. And let's agree that no state law should tell a woman who's had an abortion that she's going to jail or she's going to get the death penalty. Let's start there. Mm -hmm. We have to humanize this situation. I'm not going to be a part of demonizing this issue. It's personal for everyone, and we need to treat it with the respect that it deserves. Ambassador, thank you for sharing some of your um, also personal experience with this. Pence says every candidate, though, should support a ban on abortion before 15 weeks as a minimum nationwide standard. What is your minimum? First of all, let's why put women through this? Why put men through this in a way that they're going to hate each other and demonize each other? We don't have 60 Senate votes. So where is the consensus? We have to figure out But the American people want to know from you as as a woman as well where you would stand on this. A lot of candidates have come out and said they're either for 6 weeks, they're for 15 weeks. What is your number? Well, first of all, I'm for whatever the states decide where they are, but I'm also going to tell you my job is I'm going to support or promote saving as many babies as possible and support as many moms as possible. Wherever those 60 Senate votes come down, we're going to do it. If you can't get 60 votes, you can't save babies. So it's going to require a lot of coming together and figuring out where people are, but we're not going to divide our country over this issue. We're going to bring our country together and where we can get 60 votes, that's what we're going to do. Can we have an honest conversation before we let you go, Ambassador, about Donald Trump? He chose not to attend the debate last night because of his commanding lead in the polls. It's difficult to discount uh, the trajectory here. I know you don't think that he's going to be the nominee, but he's leading the field by anywhere between 20 and 40 points when you look at the poll. I remember the day you endorsed Marco Rubio in the 2016 campaign. You said, I will not stop until we fight a man that chooses not to disavow the KKK, referring to Donald Trump that is not a part of our party, that is not who we are. With that said, your party seems to be in love with Donald Trump. What is your path to the nomination? Well, look, I was proud to serve in Donald Trump's administration and push the foreign policy that we did that basically took the kick me sign off of our backs at the U.N. and had America respected again. And I support a lot of the policies that he supported. But I think that you have to look at the fact that three quarters of Americans don't want to see a Trump-Biden replay. Um, the majority of Americans, I mean, Trump is the the most disliked politician in America and the most disliked politician in America can't win a general election. So this was the kickoff to the debate season and to the election season. I think now people are paying attention. I think there's a big difference on people who support Trump and people who are going to vote for Trump. I think people know that we've got new issues, big issues that we need solutions. We can't keep looking to the past. We've got to leave the drama and negativity to the past. We need a new generational conservative leader that's going to Focus on what it takes to really get America back on track. I was a two-term governor that took a double-digit unemployment state and turned it into an economic powerhouse. I was at the UN. I didn't deal with one country. I dealt with 193. I'm not a lawyer. I'm an accountant. I think it's time that we get our fiscal house in order, our, close our border, make sure we have law and order, get transparency in the schools, and have a national security that will keep Americans safe. She's fresh off the debate stage and with us here on Bloomberg, former governor, former ambassador Nikki Haley. We thank you for the time this morning on Bloomberg. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
All right, let's talk about the stock of the day and really the week and maybe year to date. NVIDIA, a little chip maker, all time high today. It's up 1.3%. Just extraordinary story. Uh, Let's talk to somebody who uh, does his chip stuff for a living, Kunjan Sobani. He is the lead semiconductor analyst. He doesn't follow anybody. He's the lead semiconductor analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm at... I did not hire this guy, so let's see how he does, though, okay? Kujan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. He joins us via Zoom in San Francisco. He's a SoCal guy, uh, undergrad, USC, business school, UCLA. I don't know where his loyalties lie between those two schools, but uh, NVIDIA, Kujan, talk to us about the quarter we had yesterday. Uh, just monster, monster revenue, right? Right. I mean, uh, it was not a big surprise to us at least it was in line with our preview call yet again they delivered a blockbuster quarter Uh, most of the upside again was primarily driven by their data center segment which are their uh, gpus that go in all the data centers and primarily used for ai these days so it was uh, it was more of a function of them able to get a lot more supply because the demand has been rising and is running ahead of the supply and we expect similar growth to continue because, the, again, there's a lot of signals that demand continues to rise. Kunjan, when uh, when NVIDIA puts in an order, right, because they don't make their own chips. So they go to TSMC and they say, we want this many uh, GPUs. Does TSMC say, well, you know, get in line. You know, everybody wants these things. Or does uh, NVIDIA get to step to the head of the line? I mean, NVIDIA does have garnered a lot of buyer power. Look, they're the number one player when it comes to GPU, and they've been getting the mo- growing the most fast. So they do have a lot of pull. But it's not just a function of getting line. When you have growth like this, which has not, I've not seen, I've been in the industry for 20 years, and I've not seen such beats uh, in the 20 years. So it's not just easy to just bring up supply because it's not sitting somewhere. These are leading edge nodes products. Uh, and especially the supply crunches at the packaging side, because these are most advanced packaging and the supply just didn't exist. So suddenly when you go and say, I need double than what I expected, it takes time to bring up supply. So it's not a function of ESMC not putting them back in the queue. It's just, it takes time to bring up that supply. Hey, Kunja, this is Barry Ritholtz. And I'm looking at this chart year to date. We're up 222% in NVIDIA. Raises the question, how much of the upside is priced in already? I mean, um, coming into this quarter, there were a lot of concerns exactly about that point. But look, we think this another blockbuster print and raise should ease some of those concerns because there is definitely less doubt when it comes to sustainability of the demand. Um, and like you saw, you know, we, we have seen market reactions similar to last quarter. It's helping boost another sort of rally to the AI exposed names. In terms of the other chips, does it matter? Does it matter what they make for PCs? Does it matter what they make for car? Does it matter what they make for phone? I mean, overall for the company it does matter, but right now people are only focused about data center because that's really, I mean, it's become close to 70% or more of the revenue. So that's what really people are focusing on right now. All right. So how about like AMD, Intel, Broadcom, Qualcomm, where are those guys in terms of, I don't know, just their AI-ness, if you will, their exposure to AI. How, How do you think about those companies? I mean, this is the largest and the fastest growing opportunity that we have seen in a long while in the semi world. So everyone is trying to get a 
get a bite on on the, this large piece of the pie now um you know they are all playing catch up because nvidia was the leader um we think there's definitely opportunity for some other names like amd broadcom to some degree intel to grab a small sliver of this pie which again even though it's a small percentage of the total market share adds to your tap line in terms of billions of dollars. So they're all playing catch up. They should all still see the benefits of it. But we believe when it comes to GPU well, and accelerators, NVIDIA will be the dominant share. I mean, but Kunjan, if you look at a pie uh, chart and it's, you know, GPUs in server centers today, not GPUs that they, you know, have designed, not GPUs that they have for sale and maybe a customer is going to buy, but GPUs that are already in um, the big server centers, how much of that pie is NVIDIA? Oh gosh, in, in like 90, close to 95%. So huge. Yeah. So, so that is very reminiscent of Tesla a decade ago. All we heard was, hey, this is an up and comer and they have a huge lead and it's going to take forever for people to catch up. It's still Tesla's world. Everybody else is just paying rent, as Dan Ives, um, as not, Dan Ives likes to say. I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. They used to have the market all to themselves. You can't say that anymore. There are credible competitors to Tesla. That wasn't true five years ago. So the, the parallel I'm trying to raise is it's NVIDIA's world. Everybody else is living in it. How long is that going to last for? You don't have the same consumer loyalty issues that have been driving Tesla. This is just who can produce the most GPUs for the least cost. That's going to be who's winning. Huge head start. When might other companies begin to make a dent in that massive, unsustainable 90-plus percent market? John, what do you think? I mean, look, you're correct. There's definitely going to be some dent, but we don't see it in the near term. I mean, worst case, you can think of what I've, we have seen numbers or what we think, right? The 95 share could go as low as like 85, 80 in the next maybe three or four, five years, but that's still huge. One thing you have to remember is, they are not even able to ship to the entire orders they have. Like even after such a high beat, what we're hearing from customers is they can't get enough NVIDIA chips and they are not willing to uh, go to another uh, chip maker right now that we cannot get NVIDIA. Let's go and buy something else. They still are waiting to get the NVIDIA chips and solutions. All right. What's the, I don't know, I'm going to say, not going to say the bear case for NVIDIA, but what's the, maybe a headwind out there that maybe the market's not paying enough attention to, do you think? Uh, one risk factor is definitely China, which people are paying attention because, you know, any more incremental sanctions in this area, because the AI area comes under a lot of focus when you think about U.S.-China trade sanctions. Uh, come, they have, were already sanctioned last year from not allowing, not them allowing selling their highest generation chip to the China. And look, outside of the U.S., the largest cloud supply service providers are in China. So that could be, uh, you know, in the case of really restrictive sanctions, that could be, that could limit their upside. That could limit their TAM opportunity. So that's one of the risk cases right now. Really, really quite fascinating. Uh, other than, other than AI, is there any other field than NVIDIA um, sort of the way Qualcomm took over mobile, is there any other potential use case for NVIDIA chips or is this an AI story only? 
Well, there's definitely the other up and coming market for them is automotive. You, look, everyone's aware cars are becoming sort of computer running on wheels. Uh, <laughs> as we go to autonomous driving, as we get a higher penetration of EVs, um, there's really three key players when it comes to compute in cars. And NVIDIA is one of them. All right, Kujan, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts. Uh, Kujan Sobhani. He is the lead semiconductor analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based out there in our San Francisco office, so right smack uh, in the middle of the, the Silicon Valley and all the tech speak out there. So uh, giving us his thoughts on NVIDIA, and again, just a monster beat and yeah. raise again. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney joining you live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We're joined with uh, Barry Ritholtz, Ritholtz Wealth Management, joining us uh, here for a, spe a spell here. Uh, we're also on that YouTube thing. Uh, Boeing. Shares of Boeing and its biggest supplier, Spirit Aero Systems Holdings, fell after the plane maker disclosed improperly drilled holes in a component that helps maintain cabin pressure within the 737 MAX jet. Here we go again. George Ferguson, he joins us. He covers all the aerospace stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he um, is a veteran of the U.S. Army, so we thank him for his service. But, of course, the highlight of his career was uh, the four years he spent at Penn State uh, cheering on the Nittany Lions. George, uh, we love Boeing. It's a great, great American company. What's going on? How serious is this latest issue? Uh, so first, thanks, as always, for having me on. So, uh yeah, the, uh, you know, Boeing has said that there's no safety of flight issues for these, uh, these holes that were sort of misdrilled in the rear pressure bulkhead. Um, I mean, so I, I think in the story, that's the positive. The challenge here is the challenge we've been seeing all year, multiple years, right? It's, 
really quality control down at the suppliers. The supplier uh, bases have really gone through a lot of turnover employees uh, since the pandemic, uh, and that just keeps biting them, right? And so, again, another story. We're not, we don't we don't know full numbers on what it's going to cost to repair. The great news is we don't have to bring everything in from out of the fleet right away to repair it. My guess is that they'll worry about maybe crack propagation over time, you know, as you do more takeoffs and landings uh, on an airframe. So they're probably required some level of inspection. It may slow down deliveries this year as they try to fix what they have going through the processes right now before they get into the fleet and don't need to do the extra inspection later on. Um, so it probably puts some of Boeing's deliveries at risk this year. We'll, we'll wait to hear what they've got to say. And again, the good news is not going to spend a lot of money bringing everything in from out of the fleet. But again, the, the, the challenge here is supplier, you know, is supplier skill set, supplier stability. So, hey, George, Barry Ritholtz. Um, so you're, you're touching on exactly where I wanted to go, which is, is this just a freakish one off or is there a larger problem with process? How does something like this happen? How is it not caught sooner? And, and what does it mean for all the rest of the systems we don't know anything about? Yeah. Well, look, I think, there's a, I think the good news is on aircraft builds, uh, it's very robust, and so there is some tolerance for everything not being perfect. You clearly want to be at perfect, right, so that you can minimize any risks as you build an airframe. But I think, Barry, we've gotten way past the one-off there's been so many uh, problems coming out of the supplier base, especially Spirit, uh, where I think you have to uh, concern yourself now with process, right? And I think Boeing really needs to get in there and figure out why Spirit can't get the, you know, these really critical manufacturing processes standardized and stabilized so they're, they're coming through the factory correct the first time. Is this specific to the 737? Or might this be a broader problem that affects everything that comes out with a Boeing logo on it? So the 737 and, and the rear pressure bulkhead would be built at Spirit and, and no other Boeing airplane would have that rear pressure bulkhead done at Spirit. So I'm, I'm guessing this is gonna be largely a 737 issue. I, I mean, maybe the 767, 767 runs through Spirit as well. But uh, we haven't heard anything about it. It's low volume, too. I'm guessing it's going to be largely a 737 issue right now. George, uh, you also cover Spirit Aerosystems. Uh, the stock is down 15% on the news today. It's off 34% year to date. Most of us don't know anything about Spirit Aerosystems. Tell us who they are, what they do, and does this come as a surprise to you? Yeah, so they make a lot of fuselage pieces for Boeing. Uh, they make, I think it's something like about 70% of the 737 uh, aircraft, right? So they're really integral to that airplane. Spirit was spun out of Boeing a bunch of decades ago. Um, you know, the, it's a Wichita uh, factory. I think that Boeing probably wanted to get outside uh, of the main company so they could save a little bit of money uh, on labor. Um, again, it doesn't surprise me because we've seen other problems at Spirit recently uh, in, in processes. What, you know, one of the things I think very telling about how important Spirit is to Boeing is I'd call Spirit somewhat challenged from a financial standpoint. Uh, they've recently received uh, advances from Boeing, uh, you know, to, to support some of their cash flow. We saw them go into the markets, um, I think it was last year or early this year, actually it was early this year, 
and they raised some bonds at over 9%, which I think is really difficult yeah. for a supplier to kind of support that kind of, uh, that kind of, that kind of debt costs. Uh, but then Boeing has put money into the supplier because they are so important to Boeing. And I think part of this story is going to be, I think the market's telling you they think Spirit's going to be responsible and ultimately have to pay for these repairs, right? Boeing would try to recoup it from them. But Spirit only has so much capability to pay for those, uh, you know, for the cost of, the, of these problems. And so it's going to be interesting to watch Boeing as they work with Spirit to figure yeah. out a, a repayment plan and some of this stuff. George, just got about uh, 30 seconds here, but Boeing seems to be beset with issues on the 737, even though Paul trusts it more than any other plane. Um, is the Airbus A320 just a better platform? You know, I, I wouldn't call it a better platform, but I think the Airbus does have more stability in the builds of that. They do, do more of it in-house, uh, and that's going to lead to higher build rates for Airbus and better profitability. So something that Boeing absolutely has to surmount. All right, George, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, as always, George Ferguson, he's the senior aerospace defense and airline analyst uh, for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. And as it relates to Boeing, I'm going to go back to my personal opinion. They never should have left Seattle. They are Seattle. Seattle is Boeing. One of the great drives in from an airport to a downtown is Seattle. You come down, whatever that interstate is, it's a 30-minute ride roughly, and almost the entire ride on the left of the interstate is Boeing. Hangars, airfields, jets taking off. I mean, it's just the engineering gut of the company. So what do you do? You move to Chicago and now Washington, D.C. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Jordan Lopez joins us. He does this stuff for a living. He's a director and high-yield portfolio manager at Payton and Regal. Jordan, talk to us about the high-yield market this year. How has it, it been? It looks like it's outperforming. It looks like it's the place to be. It looks like they're not too worried about a recession. Yeah, I think that's been the story of the year. I think coming into the year, you know, the, the base case expectation was for a recession. Um, and, and we're really seeing few signs of, of a recession, uh, which, which is really keeping default forecasts low. Uh, so, so if you look at, you know, both macro data on the employment side uh, or the growth side, they're both coming in much stronger than expected. And, and then when we look at earnings, you know, earnings have been very resilient. So when you take a step back and look at the big picture, um, I, I think, you know, some of these draconian default expectations just aren't coming to fruition. Uh, and, and that's really what's what's driven at, at least the, the rallying spreads. So that's exactly where I was going to go. You know, high yield, look at look at a fund like HYG, you're getting 5.3%. Investment grade corporate, not getting a whole lot less. Why do I want to go out on the risk uh, scale and, and embrace high yield over investment grade corporates? Well, when you when you look at the broader market, the, the yields are closer to, you know, mid to high 8%. And so there is still a decent pickup. And like I said, if, if, you're, if your default expectations aren't much, you are still getting paid to go out. Um, when, when we look at the, the high yield market itself, you know, credit metrics are still very, very strong. They are certainly coming off of, of what were all time highs. Uh, but, you know, when, when you look at something like interest coverage ratio, or, or a company's ability to service their debt, uh, it, it's still 
very, very well above uh, historical averages. So even if we are to have some sort of recession, um, we think that that you know most of the companies within the high yield space should be able to manage that. And therefore, you are getting paid above something like investment grade. What sectors do you like out there? Um, I've had a lot of experience in the high yield space in the media, telecom space, and boy, the high yield market uh, loves the, those companies. Where Where are you guys looking? Well, are you still going? I mean, hasn't high yield done so well that it's outrageously expensive at this point? No, you know, spreads are still slightly above uh, historical averages. Um, and, and you know, back, back to the, the conversation about which sectors we like, Media and cable are actually have some of the more problematic companies in the in the space right now. Surprisingly enough, what what people uh, don't really appreciate about the market is is the energy companies have done exceptionally well. Yep. Um, I, I know they were kind of the black sheep of the market back in 2015, early 2016. Um, but when we look at a lot of those companies now, a lot of them actually have investment grade credit metrics. And for, for many of them, we just think it's a, a matter of time before uh, they get upgraded to investment grade. So although that, that space trades tight relative to the market, we still think there are several opportunities there from, for further spread compression. All right. So I'm looking here. So is it a sense of this high yield market is feeling pretty good about the economy that they're maybe – just not pricing in that risk at this point, uh, or do you really still have to be careful here? I think I think where you have to be careful is is the companies you choose. Okay. Um, so so certainly there there is going to be some dispersion. There are going to be winners and and losers. Um, but if if you're able to to do your your credit work, you know you you can still find plenty of opportunities out there where you get paid a, a healthy yield. Um, and, and you can sleep well at night owning a lot of these companies. How about the, in, in, the, in the media space? I'm going to go back to my bailiwick here, having punched out a bunch of these over, over the years. That's a tough sector right now. Advertising, headwinds potentially here, the, all the cord-cutting issues. And there's a lot of cable debt out there. There's a lot of broadcasting debt out there. What's your feeling on, on the broader media space? Yeah, it, it's certainly been one of the most challenged spaces, and and from a fundamental standpoint, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, there there have been um, a, a lot of slowing of growth uh, in in some of the you know uh, some of some of the cable operators. Um, it, it is challenged, but you know when when you look at valuations, a, a lot of that's already priced in. That that's one area where you do see more distressed type of companies. Um, and so from a fundamental standpoint, that's a, that's a tough story, but that is being reflected in, in the overall spreads of the market. Um, and, and again, you know, like anything else, there, there will be winners and losers coming out of that space, and, and there will be some opportunities there. All right, Jordan. Thanks so much, uh, Jordan Lopez, uh, Director and High Yield Portfolio Manager for Payton and Regal. I think it's interesting there that uh, the high yield market uh, doing really well in front of what everybody's been talking about for the last 12 months of a recession. Yeah, you could get about 300 basis points. That, that's what Jordan was talking about. But you're, you're looking at B-grade companies. You're not look, even looking at double B. You're looking at... Uh, so do you, you, what do you do with high yield with your clients? Do you have anything in there? Not a whole lot. Right. You know, up until very recently, you weren't... First of all, go back a year and a half. The spread between investment-grade... Um, and high yield was so tiny, and the returns were so 
pitiful. You know, who cares about the difference between one and three quarters and two and a quarter percent if you have to go out on the curve? It, it's amazing how far everything has spread out. But keep in mind, if you want to want a safe investment, the 10 year is well over four percent. You could do OK without taking a lot of risk. Yeah. I mean, you can buy uh, the twos and get five. Right. The, there the risk is whether or not we run into uh, rate cuts or a recession in, in the next year. Or yeah, two. but you're still getting 5%, so you don't have to do anything except for let it mature if you want it. Yeah, I guess. That, um, that's and, and, and frankly, yep. the 20s, you get 4.5. All right, that was Jordan Lopez, Director and High Yield Portfolio Manager, Payton and Regal, helping us out with the high yield space. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Matt Miller here in the studio with Paul Sweeney and Barry Ritholtz. And we have a special guest. We were talking about Hannah Elliott earlier from Bloomberg Pursuits. We've got her on uh, the cam from Los Angeles. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. I wanted to talk about the uh, the car that I, I was driving last week, which is, I think, wi uh, widely controversial. And that's the BMW XM. It's supposedly, it's a dedicated M car. And they haven't done one of those since the M1. And this means basically their speed shop, you know, their skunk works unit um, is making this and and they're not going to have a regular kind of street version of it um but they detuned the 4.4 liter twin turbo v8 to be less powerful than it is in the x5m and um there's no air suspension and a lot of people think it's kind of ugly and first i want to get your take on it what do you think about this big behemoth of a hybrid well, I have to say BMW is making us work really hard to really like them these days, and I don't really understand why. Um, I do agree that their styling choices and the choices they're making with their engines and power plants right now are a little bit confusing and even puzzling. Uh, I have to say my disclaimer is I haven't driven this vehicle, so I, I can't speak to that, but I have driven the iX. IX, which is the electric version, uh, which I thought was very capable, but unfortunately didn't look great. It sounds like you felt a little bit the same way about this one, Matt. Yeah, this. so uh, this is, we're looking at pictures of it now. For those of you only listening, you go to youtube.com, you can stream us live by searching for Bloomberg Radio there. I mean, I personally like it because it's so big and aggressive, um, but I think, first of all, it's way overpriced, $167,000 um, for a car Crazy. that doesn't even get the sunroof option. I could understand if they're saying, like, because it's a track car, you know, we want the stiffness um, and the low low weight of uh, just the, the, the flat roof. But um, why then detune the V8 and there's no air ride suspension so it's not like a, a luxury suv for you know the well-heeled it's not like a kardashian mobile so i just don't really get what they're doing with it and and barry i love i'm a huge fan of the brand and i know you are too yeah the, i'm gonna i'm gonna give this car a sort of backhanded compliment this is the least ugly new bmw in a couple <laughs> of years uh maybe because the, the i don't know what they're thinking with those giant 
grills that are on the three and four series are just horrific. And some of the choices that have been made, I understand you want the electric vehicles to have a different look. And so they went for, for something that was uh, a, a little less rounded, let's say, than some of their other stuff. This isn't a terrible-looking car. I don't have a problem with no air suspension. They're notoriously quirky. They break, and they're really expensive to repair. It's 167 grand. Uh, that's, a, that's a whole different question. Hannah can answer, what are they thinking? Who are they competing with with the XM? You know what? This seems to me like a case of we're going to price it again. We're going to price it compared to the people that we think we're competing against, which is probably Porsche and Mercedes. But the price is a bit aspirational. Like BMW is hoping that the price means that they're competitive with those other vehicles. But I just don't think the product is. And when you can get a, a, a Cayenne for less than that, it, again, I think you're absolutely right. The price does seem wildly uh, inappropriate. Well, a Cayenne, you're not getting word. the GTS or the Turbo. What are you getting for yeah, that Yeah, you can get money? the Cayenne Turbo for less than 170 Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. for sure. And this yeah. goes up against the Cayenne yeah. Turbo Hybrid. And I think you're right. That's yeah. what they want, but you can't beat that car. Yeah, that's tough. Right, that's, that's the thing. Just because you make your price the same as another company's product doesn't mean your product is comparable. It, it doesn't work like that. I don't think, you know, certainly consumers are not dumb and they're going to pick up on that really quick. I did uh, drive the snot out of this thing and <laughs> it was super fun. I mean, I'm it's a sure. gigantic, obviously, beast, um, but it's got this uh, active electronic anti-roll bar in it that yeah. holds it flat and neutral even when you rip it around corners right. at speeds that are uh, super illegal. But um, I feel like... <laughs> I could get a lot more car from the same manufacturer for so much less. I'd much prefer the X5 if you need the SUV. If you don't need something like that, I'd much prefer the 2 Series. Hannah, what do you think about BMW in terms of their you know, competitiveness in other, in other segments? Well, obviously, they're competitive in, in the X5 and the 2 Series. And, of course, you know, their sedans. And they have been. Um, I think where it gets confusing is when BMW is doing the hybrid things, the electric things, and they're also, let's not forget, doing hydrogen. Um, it's just a little muddled to me, and I think their messaging is muddled, and they haven't really figured out what it means for a BMW to be running a hybrid or an electric power plant, whereas other companies just seem miles ahead in that regard. Hannah, I, I know you just spent the past week at Monterey. What did you see there? And, and oh, man. Uh, uh, did, it, did it reach your expectations that this is simply the best auto show in the world uh, anywhere, anytime? Yes. Yes, yes. It's a little bit mind-blowing. We saw more than 20 new car debuts. This is obviously the new auto show. If you want to see new cars, you go there. I'll tell you what really interested me, which was this $300,000 Ford Mustang GTD. Uh, Ford's Jim Farley has made no bones about the fact that he's going right after Porsche with this Mustang. It's a street-legal Mustang based on the car that they're going to run in Le Mans next year. And um, Jim Farley told me straight up, hey, I've been a fan of Porsche for 50 years. I've been watching what they did with their racing programs, their GT3 cars, their GT2 cars. 
And we want to do that with Mustang. There's no reason why we can't. So I'm very interested in that particular car. Three hundred grand for a yeah, that's more than a GT3. I mean, that's they price themselves higher than any Porsche competition. You you could get two, uh, almost get two of the uh, MXs for that much money. Yeah, you could. I mean, here's the thing. I think if the race car version of that car wins next year at Le Mans. All will be forgiven, including the the rear transaxle on the production car and the front engine and the pricing. Honestly, I think it all goes away if they win next year. So we'll see. What what else did you see that caught your eye? Okay, there's this. I'm sure you've read about it. The thirty million dollar Rolls Royce drop tail. This is part of their coach built series which basically means consumers can design a car from the ground up they're making four of them um they don't want to say who's buying it but you have to imagine this is a, a international family uh longtime collectors you know rolls royce says it's not about just who can come to us with a blank checkbook it's not just about people who own 20 rolls royces it's actually a mix of things and it's people who are engaged with the brand um but this $30 million drop tail, it's a roadster, actually, uh, was, was pretty striking. It, it looks hot. I mean, I saw it on your, either on your Twitter feed or your Instagram feed. Um, one of the other things that I saw uh, on your social media is the new Lamborghini, or I guess it's a prototype, yeah. right? Electric. I hot. think the it looks so hot. Yeah, that looks so great. Hot. I'm excited too. about that. Me too. It's all electric. And I have to say there, there was some grumbling among, of course, the Lamborghini purists that what is happening? We swore we'd never do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that car looks amazing. Uh, That's a Mitya Boker creation. Mitya is the head designer of Lamborghini. He actually was formerly at Porsche. He's actually German, but he's making some great Italian cars. This is his latest concept. I think it looks fabulous and they kind of have to make it right yeah they have they have to go electric at some point of course lamborghini's in the porsche stable they're all volkswagen properties but yeah yeah i can't wait to see that all right great stuff hannah elliott always bringing it since we're talking cars with a couple of car geeks, what could go wrong here in our, the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio? Uh, Concourse de Elegance. I've been there many, many times. Very, very cool uh, on the Monterey Peninsula. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130 bit of a M&A trade here in the, uh, I guess, the restaurant business, the fast food restaurant, the sandwich business. Roark Capital uh, is in a deal to buy uh, Subway uh, for more than $9 billion. Roark Capital, uh, as a private equity firm, owns brands including Arby's, Dunkin', Buffalo Wild Wings, and rival substore Jimmy John's. Let's break down this transaction, get a sense of what's happening in the restaurant business. We check in with Mike Halen. He's a senior restaurant analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Hey, Mike, talk to us about Roar Capital and this deal for Subway. What's 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 going on here? Yeah, Roark has a, a, a long history of um, activity in, in the restaurant space. Uh, they currently own a ton of brands, you know, a lot of a lot of great brands that you mentioned. Um, they've been very active in the space over the last decade or so. Uh, and and this is you know another interesting addition to their portfolio. You know to their to your point, um, 
they own Arby's and um, Jimmy John's. That's through uh, their Inspire Brands group. Um, and so, the, you know, they've had a, a lot of experience turning around brands, turning around brands. They've had a lot of experience running sandwich shops. Um, and so they see some value here. They pay 13 times EBITDA, which um, is kind of high considering some of the, the problems that they have. But, you know, clearly with, with the scale that they have, um, you know, there, it, there is definitely uh, some potential in this brand. So, Mike, this is Barry Ritholtz. Sub, Subway has 37,000 stores across 100 countries. What is it? that Rourke Capital is looking for? Is it the footprint? Is it the real estate? Or is it just, hey, this is a lot of potential that's been underperforming? I think it's the, the latter, right? This is a, a franchise brand that you know spits off a lot of cash flow, right? And so that's very attractive to somebody like Rourke. You can, you can lever it up um, and you know really juice the returns on something like this. You know, this is a chain where Average unit volumes have really lagged over the last, you know, five, six, seven years, and average unit volumes are less than a half a million dollars. You know, that that's less than half of what uh, Jersey Mike's is doing. They're at about 1.1 million. So um, there's definitely some room for growth, and you know, I think that the chain has been moving in the right direction. You know, adding slicers mm -hmm. is going to improve. You know, what what they've done recently has has uh, improved the quality of the of the meat. Um, they spent a lot of money on advertising with a, like very high profile celebrities. They've made some menu changes and uh, they're closing a lot of stores. Right. And so when you close your underperforming stores, you know, they've closed 6000 stores, I think, since 2015 or 2016. Wow. Even uh, they're still closing it. Uh, I think 600 s stores or so were closed in 2022. So when you start pairing the underperforming stores, the returns on investment, cash on cash returns start looking a lot better for franchisees. And then franchisees are from outside the system, you know, might kind of look back into Subway again, right? So I think they're all pushing the right buttons, um, but you can't turn around an aircraft carrier on a dime, right? It's gonna take some time. So, so let's address that because Jersey Mike's feels younger, newer, fresher. They haven't been around quite as long. Subway, this is a storied brand that's been around, you know, more than half a century, and it feels like it's kind of gotten tired and stodgy. How can you inject new life into a company like this when, you know, there, there's a lot of history to overcome? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, quality is usually a, a great starting point for, for a good turnaround. And, and like, you know, to, to my point earlier, like spending money on slicers, uh, is a good start, but you know maybe there's some other things that they need to do. Maybe it's uh, upgrades on on the quality of the meat. Maybe it's upgrades on on the uh, quality of the bread and things of that nature. Um, but you know, you know, to your point, you have to get people in the door, right? Like Jersey Mike's is bringing twice as many customers, maybe more, into their stores, and so by proxy, the food's going to be fresher, right? Uh, Inventory is not going to sit there uh, in the deli case, um, so. You know, it, it, it's going to definitely take some take some time. But, um, you know, listen, they have this massive footprint. They have a ton of scale. Right. So they can source product more cheaply than anybody. Um, they're in a lot of locations that Jersey Mike's isn't. So there's the risk of Jersey Mike's continuing to move down the street from them and kind of maybe take some of their uh, market share if they don't uh, act uh, aggressively enough. You know, so, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch. But 
Rourke Capital and Inspire Brands, I don't know if they're going to fold this into Inspire Brands, both have a tremendous track record of, of turning around restaurants and running great restaurants and restaurant brands. So uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. Hey, Mike, uh, you, you cover the entire restaurant space. Where Where's the consumer spending money these days? What do you see? What are the trends out there? And, and who's doing a good job uh, in the restaurant space? Yeah, things are slowing a little bit. Um, you know, I was talking to a client yesterday, which was kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum. Um, what had surprised me on the downside, and that's fine dining. Uh, and I've heard, you know, some some issues with some of the um, high-end retailers. And it looks like that's kind of spilling over into restaurants, which was interesting and kind of surprising, right? Because we've had this uh, K-shaped recovery where uh, people that on the higher end of the income scale were able to work from home and during the pandemic and saved a lot of money because they weren't going on vacations and going out to restaurants, have all this disposable income and continue to spend. Whereas the low income consumer and middle income consumer were, were more, um, were tightening their belts a little bit. Um, you know, who's doing well. There's a couple chains though that continue to do well, you know, um, McDonald's, even in a slowing in a McDonald's in a slowing environment for restaurants, uh, tends to have a pretty good advantage, you know, like Subway, they have a ton of scale and they can offer price points that competitors just can't match. And so, um, their sales trends continue to be very strong. Um, but we've seen a slowdown in the second quarter, a few chains saw some, some slowdowns versus 2019, um, Starbucks, Chipotle, uh, a bunch of names that we cover started to slow a bit. Um, but in general, those those fast casual, those quick service type names and fast casual type names are, are probably better positioned than than the full service chains that we cover. Some casual diners, companies like Cheesecake Factory and Brinker. And of course, my favorite, as you well know, is Cracker Barrel. Uh, stocks at a 52 week low today uh, off 13 percent. The country boy breakfast to die for. Just loosen the belt, sit right down. Boom, you hit it. Mike Halen, Senior Restaurant Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us. I know what I'm talking about when it comes to restaurants, uh, but Mike Halen is the expert, so we appreciate uh, that. Uh, S&P 500 off a half of 1%. I will keep that in mind. Barry Rudolph, thanks for stopping by and giving us some of your uh, time on Thursday. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.